This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Good afternoon. I'd like to speak about habits and underlying tendencies. I'd like to begin with um, a quote from an article that Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote. And the first is to consider how they manifest in action. Because if a tendency manifests in action, it's pretty gross. I mean, it's coarse, and it will have an effect. And so we control our actions through taking the precepts, through committing to not kill, not steal, not lie, not engage in sexual abuse, and not use intoxicants that cause the mind to be heedless. These tendencies can also manifest through thoughts and emotions, and so we develop concentration, samadhi, and um, mindfulness in our meditation in order to relate wisely to thoughts and emotions. But unwholesome thoughts, emotions, and mental states can still arise in the mind even if our behavior is controlled unless the underlying tendency is uprooted. They're considered then to be dormant seeds that are waiting for the right conditions to erupt. These underlying tendencies can manifest as a kind of basic character disposition that's conditioned through the stream of our kama and may arise whenever the conditions ripen. So for example, Tendencies towards irritation and anger arise more easily in times of fatigue, stress, or lack of mindfulness. Because when we're not bringing in these wholesome practices of mindfulness and, and meditation or, or contemplating the precepts, then those underlying tendencies have a chance to arise. And they might arise through um, irritation or anger. In fact, the underlying tendencies only arise when our mindfulness is weak. One um, psychotherapist, Harriet Lerner, said, If everything is calm in my life, it is easy for me to think I am a very mature, highly evolved, clear-thinking, well-spoken, Zen Buddhist-like person. But when enough stress hits, I have the brain of a reptile. And I think when we become more and more, as we become more and more self-aware, we realize that we're not only dealing with the gross um, tendencies that come into action, but we're starting to look at the roots of them, these underlying tendencies that really may only arise when we are deeply stressed, fatigued, or, um, or, um, or in some way or other, um, maybe sick, sometimes they arise when we're ill, um, something that causes our mindfulness to fall well below its normal, um, its normal level in our lives. Sometimes we call these underlying tendencies a kind of default, um, where the, it's the place where the mind slides to when we are not able to give wise attention to our experience. 
And so by, under, by examining these underlying tendencies, we're looking really not only at our um, habits and our intentions, but we're looking at the actions and the conditioning that perpetuates the stream of kama, the stream of action, what conditions our future. In a nutshell, there are three causes for the arising of kama or action. Greed is a cause for the arising of kama. Hatred is a cause for the arising of kama. Delusion is a cause for the arising of kama. And the sutta continues. It is not non-greed that arises from greed. It is greed that arises from greed. It is not non-hatred that arises from hatred. It is hatred that arises from hatred. It is not non-delusion that arises from delusion. It is delusion that arises from delusion. Now that may sound like there's quite a few load of knots in there and negatives. And it seems simple enough actually to just say that greed arises from greed. But when we really think about it, when we manifest mm -hmm. greed, we can look back at the root of that. And the, it's an, a, a greedy action is rooted in greed. And part of the investigative practice is to look and see the roots of things. Because that will give us more information about what we're, what, what we're acting based on, what the impulse is, and what we're conditioning by acting, um, on acting in, in the present moment. Now there's a beautiful discourse called the simile of the two, the parable of the two darts and many of you will be familiar with this because it describes the difference between feeling a painful feeling and hating the painful feeling that we're feeling. And the Buddha basically says, bhikkhus, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, he sorrows, grieves, and laments. He weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. Then he feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Suppose they were to strike a man with a dart, and then they would strike him immediately afterwards with a second dart, so that the man would feel feelings caused by two darts. So too, when the uninstructed worldling is being contacted by a painful feeling, he feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. And we know this when we're experiencing pain and we have aversion to the pain. We not only have the immediate pain, the first start, but we have the second one, which we impose upon ourselves by the way that we relate to the experience. I hate that. I don't like it. I want it to go away. But then he continues. Being contacted by that same painful feeling, he harbors aversion towards it. When he harbors aversions towards painful feeling, the underlying tendency to aversion towards that painful feeling lies behind this. Being contacted by painful feeling, he seeks delight in sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because the uninstructed worldling does not know any escape from painful feeling other than sensual pleasure. When he seeks delight in sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feeling lies behind this. 
he does not understand as it really is the origin and passing away, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these feelings. When he does not understand these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance lies behind this. So he describes very simply with this parable of the two darts that when we experience a painful feeling and we hate it, we often respond by wanting something pleasant, right? I mean, you can probably think of something that happened today. Oh, it's uncomfortable or I'm cold or I'm hot. And then you want a pleasant feeling, so you want to adjust your way out of it and get something nice. But then you've now, you've now developed, you've now taken action based upon both aversion and desire, both greed and hatred. And so then by not understanding that this is just a conditioned, impermanent feeling that arises and passes, you've also taken action based upon the ignorance. So we've strengthened in that greed, hate, and delusion, which is not what we want to be doing, right? And yet we do it so easily in our lives and so many times. Now this is not like big time greed, hate, and delusion. But these are the little things that keep those underlying tendencies operating. That keep them from being uprooted. That keep us from being liberated and free. So the sutta though continues. And he goes through the whole description that I just gave, but this time for the instructed noble disciple. When this instructed noble disciple feels a painful feeling, he does not harbor aversion to it. So he does not stimulate the, um, the underlying tendency to greed for sensual pleasures and does see that it's simply an impermanent feeling that arises and passes away. So he does not stimulate the underlying tendency to greed, hate, and delusion in response to that painful feeling. So instead, the sutta says, if he feels a pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels a painful feeling, he feels it detached. And if he feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. This bhikkhus is called a noble disciple who is detached from birth, aging and death, who is detached from sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure and despair, who is detached from suffering, I say. Now I really like this discourse on the two darts because these underlying tendencies um, are, I mean, they, they affect everything that we do. And so it's really helpful to notice them and to consider what could be a skillful relationship to any feeling that arises. And can we relate to pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, with the mind that is not attached, that allows the feeling to be known as just an impermanent experience that arises and passes away? so that we don't plant the seeds for future unwholesome states. Now, in the discourses, 
of the Buddha, there are not only these underlying tendencies of greed, hate, and delusion. This list of three has been expanded to a list of seven. And the seven unho um, underlying tendencies that are discussed in the Samyutta Nikaya are, the Samyutta Nikaya is that big text that I said we're going to be studying next year. Um, they include sensual desire, aversion or anger or ill will, wrong views, doubt, the conceit I am, holding on to existence and ignorance. The list of the seven tendencies is very similar, you might find, to the list of the ten fetters that are equated with the progress of insight. And each of these tendencies is uprooted at different stages of awakening. Doubt and wrong view are cut off with the path of stream entry or the first stage of enlightenment. Sensual desire and ill are eradicated by the non-returner or the third stage of enlightenment. And conceit, attachment to existence and ignorance are uprooted by the arhat, the final stage of awakening. And so you can see that in sometimes it's spelled out as a longer list, and sometimes it's abbreviated to awakening is the eradication of greed, hate, and delusion. It basically means the same thing, just one with more detail than the other. But I'd like to look at these seven briefly, one by one. The first being sensual desire. We all know what sensual desire is, right? We want pleasant feelings. We want something or someone or some place to be or something to be happening that is pleasant. Um, sensual desire is based in a kind of lack of satisfaction or lack of contentment. And this greed for more experience, the greed for pleasant experience, the greed for stimulation is said to be something that can never be satisfied in the world. The Buddha said that even if the Himalayas were all turned into gold, this would not be enough to satisfy even one man's greed. It's not, it's not, um, a mind that is discontented will, nev will not find contentment, no matter how pleasant the experience is. Now, I, I, I know this myself because um, I've practiced in monasteries that were very uncomfortable. And I've seen the level of discontent or contentment. I've also practiced in retreat centers that were like the best hotel there is. Everything perfect. I can control the heater in my own room. I have enough blankets. I have a bed. And everything is perfect. And I can see the level of discontent in the mind. Oddly enough, I don't think there was any difference between the monasteries that had no physical comforts and con lots of unpleasant situations and the retreat centers that had tremendous pleasant situations. Honestly, I would say it was about the same rate of desire and aversion arising. Mm -hmm. 
And it was a very important thing for me to look at because it's not about the external situation. It is internal. And whatever underlying tendencies we have, we have to work them out. Whether we're going to work them out in a pleasant situation or an unpleasant situation, a comfortable or an uncomfortable situation, doesn't matter at all. Greed is a cause for tremendous suffering in our cultures and on our planet. And the examples of greed causing suffering are too numerous to mention between crime and um, the destruction of nature and the pillage of resources and the oppression of the poor and the disenfranchised and just the very lack of trust that we often have with, each, with people in the world. Um, there's a story also in the uh, Vinaya, the Buddha's um, teachings to the monks of a, oh, actually this one was to a nun, where there's a, he gave the story of the golden goose. Somehow I think this has made it into every religion, but I'm not actually sure. I remember hearing about this golden goose when I was a child, and it, um, and it wasn't, my family was not Buddhist. Do you remember the golden goose story where there's this gold, this, uh, uh, this poor, this poor, um, um, poor child, this, this daughter, this poor daughter gets a, um, is given a golden goose. The go every feather on this goose is made of pure gold. And so she can basically have anything that she wants just by plucking a feather. It would solve all the problems of the family, plenty of food, this and that. So, but as soon as she gets the golden goose, what she does is she plucks all the feathers all at once. And they grow back all white. And so the golden goose story was told by the Buddha to a nun who didn't show moderation when she was offered food. And the story being, when we, if, we, if greed wants to take everything all at once, all for myself, now, then we don't have it later. And there's a kind of an abuse of the situation. And I think we see that a lot with the way that um, um, some of the forests are being destroyed or some of the, 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 the Earth's resources are being used without the thought to the future. It's there now, I want it, we take it for me, and no thinking beyond it. And so this story of the golden goose, I think, is as relevant um, at the time of the Buddha when this nun took a little, took too much garlic that was offered as it is these days when we're looking at the way that we use natural resources. Greed can destroy the very source of our prosperity. Aversion, hatred, and ill will is the next underlying tendency. And in Pali, the term is dosa. And dosa in, includes everything from aggression and hostility and strong hatred to just subtle irritation and annoyance. It's about pushing things away. Did you notice yourself resisting or pushing any experience away today? There's a story um, in the Samyutta Nikaya, 
again, of an anger-eating yakka. A yakka is kind of a... Um, kind of a celestial being, but not a very high one, a rather low one. Kind of a, not really evil, but, um, but that there's all kinds of different non-human entities that, are, that populate some of these stories. Anyway, there's a story of a yaka who's sitting on, who comes in to Saka, the king of the gods, his throne, and he occupies his throne. And it's a, you know, it's like this really low being coming in and taking the highest throne. And um, all the other devas, all the other celestial beings come around and they are, um, they are, are scornful. They're accusing the yaka. They're calling him names. They're, they're trying to, um, they're speaking really harshly to him. They're trying to get him off the throne, saying, who do you think you are? What are you doing? You know, on and on. And with all the angry words that are to- said to him, each angry word makes the yaka more beautiful, makes him more radiant, makes him more powerful. It nourishes him because he feeds on. He's an anger-eating yaka. He feeds on anger. And so so Saka approaches this yaka who has occupied his throne. And instead of getting angry at him, Saka, the king of the gods, approaches him with gentleness, with respectful speech. And then the yaka disappears, diminishes, disappears, because he's not getting fed. Now, I can picture stories like this being told to children, you know, just to teach them how to, um, you know, not always to feed somebody's anger when when they want to do it, but also not just feed our own anger. Have you ever found your own mind being like an anger anger eating yakka, where you know your mind is like almost trying to provoke itself. If you can catch that, like wanting to be angry or stimulated or irritated, and just shift to some kindness, let that fall away and see if what it is to meet anger or irritation with non-anger. Wrong view is the third um, of the tendencies, Michaditi. And wrong view implies a misinterpretation of things. Basically, it's seeing things that are impermanent as lasting, seeing what is suffering as being a reliable basis for our happiness, and seeing what is empty as being a self. This distortion of views basically makes it impossible to free the mind from any of the other fetters or tendencies, because right from the start, our perception is twisted. We're not seeing things clearly. So a lot of our mindfulness practice and our meditation is intended to just encourage us uh, encourage us to see things as they are, to see the flow of changing experiences, to notice the difference between body and mind, to notice what is going on in the present moment, to drop out of our stories and come into the present moment experience, whatever it might be. Doubt, vichikicha, is the fourth of these tendencies. And in the Samyutta Nikaya, it says, one is unable to listen to the Dhamma or learn if the mind is set to criticize 
A doubting mind relishes contradiction and argument. I think at one time or another we've all felt our mind relishing argument, not really wanting to be open and learn. And sometimes we doubt through questioning, but we're not really questioning. We're more fault-finding. Sometimes it can be aggressive and leads to despair, or very often it just leads to confusion, an empty kind of disoriented feeling. Doubt prevents us from hearing the liberating teachings, and it thwarts our ability to apply these teachings in our practice. Doubt usually sends the mind into speculation, restless agitation, trying to figure things out, asking one question after another. Without the steadiness to really look clearly at what is really happening, the tendency of doubt is to lead to Instead of a deeper understanding of things, it leads to a perpetual lack of knowledge, a general confusion that twists the intellect through discursive rationalizations and prevents the mind from settling in concentration, thereby distorting our capacity to really see things as they actually are. Sometimes doubt arises and we just doubt something and then doubt it and then doubt it and then doubt it and doubt it. But we're doubting on top of the doubting. It's like a conceptual process. Each doubt taking us further and further away from what it is we were originally questioning. Whereas a wise inquiry doesn't take us further away from it. It doesn't take us into the conceptual realm. It brings us into see what is that experience? Oh, it's impermanent. Oh, it's unsatisfactory. Oh, it's not self, are often what we discover. But doubt takes us away from the direct perception that would allow us to see the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self-characteristic of things. And it has the potential to cripple our practice. Because whether the situation is favorable or unfavorable, if we're caught into doubting about it, then we won't be cultivating clear mindfulness or concentration. When doubt takes over the mind, we usually stop investigating. We don't bother to see things clearly. We don't face the fact of things. And we often dismiss the significance of our own intuition and direct knowledge. Very often we grab a hold of some concept or view or opinion so that we feel a little bit more secure, but that opinion is not based on direct experience. Because it's not based on direct experience, it inhibits our ability to practice meditation. It ultimately destroys our confidence in our capacity to practice and prevents the deep faith in the possibility of awakening from maturing. The fifth underlying tendency in Pali is called mana, and it's usually translated as conceit, or the conceit I am. Conceit refers to the tendency to position this self-existence in any sensory contact. 
I see this, I hear this, I feel that. It's the way we construct self through all the varied sensory encounters. It manifests also as a mental agitation that conceives things as being I, me, or mine. Once this mode of viewing experience is established, we form characters in the mind. Who is this I? What is she like? And we have a habit then of thinking and associating, telling stories to ourselves about what we are doing. Have you ever narrated your own experience? Have you ever been sitting and meditating and telling yourself what you're doing? Or going for a walk, telling a story to yourself about who you're going to tell about those pretty roses that you're seeing. Sometimes through this construction of self, this conceit I am, we remove ourselves from the very experience that we are having because we begin to narrate it, comment on it, tell a story about it. It can lead to the, the concept, to fueling what are called papancha or conceptual proliferations that further distort our experience and remove us from a clear view of reality. Once conceit, the conceit I am, has infected perceptions, then we experience phenomenon, whatever it might be, by projecting our own interpretation onto the experience, grasping and considering what is this experience in terms of what I like, what I don't like, what's good for me, what's not good for me. Sensory encounters become filtered by this conceiving of I, me, and a self. Out of this conceited, out of this conceited perception of our experience, we can easily fall into anger or judgment, take things personally, act selfishly, or identify with situations and become attached to views. The tendency towards conceit is one of the very basic conditions for aggression. Because as soon as we start to identify that experience as being I, me, or mine, it's a short step before we start to defend it, to protect it, to get angry when somebody doesn't respect it, and to create us and them and opponents in any particular experience. Before expressing anger, it's helpful to look and see to what extent there is eye-making or mind-making that's fueling that anger. Is self-construction really festering underneath an expression of anger? Because if you can find that self-construction, you might be able to get a little deeper than just that irritated moment or that aversive state. When we're confronted with painful news or painful conditions, it's not unusual to separate by creating concepts of me and you. I'm like this, they're like that. Good and bad, us and them. Um, the, just these, these big separations of what's right, what's wrong, who's right, who's wrong. And we can create stereotypes and prejudice and, and act in discriminatory ways 
if these concepts that are rooted in this conceit, I am, gets affected by aversion. Anytime we create this kind of separation, we're not perceiving the situation clearly. Now, the sixth um, underlying tendency is referred to as holding on to existence. And this refers to a kind of craving for continued stimulation of the self, for continued existence, the continuation of what's called the stream of samsara. And we might see it as a basic attachment to our own lives, or as the desire for eternal existence, or the continued cycle of rebirths. But often it's simply a deep attachment to mental and material experiences that's based in ignorance, that doesn't recognize that all experiences arise and pass away. Whenever we conceive of self in relationship to our experience, then we use further experiences to sustain and fuel that concept of self. I'm doing this now, now I'm doing that, then I'm going to do this, I did this before. We keep creating experiences for ourselves to enhance and to embellish and to sustain and to keep bolstering this rather fragile concept of self. Distraction, restlessness, and this distorting concept of I am fuel the tendency to want, to crave, to cling, to avoid, and to even exist as a, as a self. In the absence of the equanimity regarding formations that actually sees in the present moment Situations arise and they pass away. Pleasant experiences come and they go. Painful feelings arise and are known and pass away. Then the tendency of mind is to hold on to experience, to want to make it last, to want to control it. This prevents the release that brings deep peace. It keeps beings caught in patterns that sustain karma and ignorance. It keeps us caught in this, um, in, in acting out of these underlying tendencies. Now, ignorance or delusion is the last of the underlying tendencies. And it's basically about not knowing. One does not know what things really are, how they're formed, how they pass away, what are their causes, and what are the, what, are, what, what are the causes of suffering, and what are the ends of suffering. Ignorance and delusion is basically about not seeing clearly, and in particular, misperceiving the characteristics of phenomenon and taking phenomenon, anything. Phenomenon is anything of mind or body or material or ma matter or mind, and taking it to be something that it's not. And usually, we take mind and body to be self. It's not. It's materiality and mentality arising due to causes and conditions. It's not self. But don't believe that. Look into your experience and see how you construct this sense of self. 
right in the moment of tasting something and hearing something and thinking something. Notice the difference between the concept of self, which is a form of grasping a cluster of experience and sustaining a concept of self, and the direct experience of what is occurring. Oh, a moment of feeling something, a sensory encounter, and a, and a mental process that perceives it, that knows it. Because ignorance often carries a rather neutral feeling to it, we often don't notice it. It's not so exciting, but it underlies all unwholesome states. So we practice to overcome the delusion by strengthening our mindful inquiry. It's not about speculative views, but we're really that the speculative views lead to doubt, but we're really looking at our experience with interest to see what are they and how are they function? What's happening now? To uproot the underlying tendencies, the Buddha gave um, several similes. And I like the one simply of a, of a youthful, of a young person who's youthful and has a, a, a lovely face. And she or he um, looks in a mirror and realizes that it's smudged with dirt and then makes an effort to clean it. I think that's what we do. We look into our minds, and if we find that it's smudged with dirt, meaning affected by the underlying tendencies, then we make an effort to clean it. The Buddha said, I must become skilled in knowing the ways of my own mind. I think that's a big part of what motivates many of us to practice is the wish to become skilled in the ways of our own mind, to recognize that we have some underlying tendencies that are causing us suffering, and we have the willingness, the integrity, the courage, and the commitment to make an effort to clean it. One of the images that the Buddha used for somebody who sees these underlying tendencies operating in their mind or to seize the hindrances or, uh, coming, uh, that arise from them. He says, one makes an urgent effort to dispel them as urgently as one whose hair or turban is on fire would try to put it out. And I think this is really helpful because sometimes we think, oh yeah, everybody has greed, hate, and delusion, so what difference does it make? And then we're not very active in our practice. But if we feel the pain of these underlying tendencies as though our hair is on fire, then we do everything we can to, to, to um, work with them skillfully. But if we find that we are not hindered, then we make an even stronger effort for the destruction of the taints because we recognize that we have in that moment a stable and strong platform for insight. Our mind is clean, it's good, it's pure. So we don't just kick back and say, yeah, yeah, I've got it made. We say, okay, now we've got the conditions. Let me really see things as they actually are. Because it's only insight 
the direct perception of things that has the power to uproot these tendencies permanently. Only the insight wisdom that sees things as they actually are can abandon our attachment to them and drive away the restless disruptions that are caused by these deep, these underlying patterns of mind. And until they're eradicated, we will not find rest. We will not feel safe. The ultimate safety only arises when we are free, free of these underlying forces. So mindfulness practice is perhaps the most useful practice for purifying the mind, for seeing these processes and not feeding them, not fueling them. Mindfulness transforms our confusion and our reactivity and brings clear attention to the experience of the present moment so that we can work skillfully with whatever it is. The Buddha said, for one's own sake, diligent mindfulness should be made the mind's guard. And this for four reasons. May my mind not harbor lust toward anything inducing lust. For this reason, diligent mindfulness should be made the mind's guard for one's own sake. And then it continues with, may my mind not harbor hatred toward anything inducing hatred or delusion or infatuation or pride towards anything inducing delusion or infatuation or pride. This power of diligent mindfulness, guarding the mind, protecting the mind, is a, um, uh, an image that can inspire us sometimes when we just don't know what to do. We can just protect the mind, bring mindfulness to it. Pause for a moment and see what's going on. Although people generally delight I mean, not you guys, generally people, like, like average people. <laughs> not people who choose to spend their Saturday in silence. You're not average people. <laughs> the Buddha said, although people generally find delight in attachment, conceit, a life of excitement, and live in ignorance, when a Buddha arises in the world and is teaching for the ending of each, there are people who lend an ear, listen, and try to understand. This is one of the marvelous things in the world. And I think it is marvelous that we come together each month and spend time in silence doing very simple things, sitting and walking. It couldn't be duller, could it? Isn't that great? <laughs> Isn't that great to not have to be stimulating our self and our ignorance all the time? I'll end with a story where the Buddha um, meets a prince and the prince asks him, did you sleep well? You know, it's just sort of, did you have a meal? Did you sleep well? You know, you ask your guests all the time, did you sleep well? You know, okay. So he asked them, did you sleep well? And the Buddha said, I am one of those people who always sleeps well. And the, then the prince asked him, 
well, how can it be that you slept well? It's cold out. You have thin, worn robes. You know, they're, 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 they're worn out. And the ground is hard, and there's no, there's no leaves on the, uh, in this forest. The leaves are very thin and few and broken. So you couldn't make like a nice mat even. And he was just, I guess, just sleeping out under a tree or something. Who knows? Um, anyway, he talked about the harshness of his life. How is it that you could sleep well? And then the Buddha, um, but the Buddha said again that he always sleeps well. And so the Buddha asked the prince, he said, well, what do you think? When um, some, when you know, do you know, do you know somebody do you, do you, who has a beautiful house with, um, with a nice fire and, a, uh, and locks on the doors for security and plenty of food and um, it goes on with a canopy over the bed and scarlet cushions at both sides and a bedspread of white antelope skin and four wives attending on him. And it goes on, like, describing all the pleasant trees. And then the Buddha says, do you think this man would sleep well? And the prince says, oh, yes, he would sleep really well. And the Buddha said, well, don't you think it's possible that he might worry and have vexations of body or mind caused by lust, hate, and delusion? such that he would be tormented and not sleep well. And then the prince says, you know, that might be so. And then the Buddha said again that now lust, hatred, and delusion has been uprooted from the Tathagata's mind, from the Buddha's own mind, and so he sleeps well in any condition. And I find that story to be very lovely because we live in great comfort. You know, for the most part, most of us are not on the street, right? You know, we've got a bed. Most of us have a pillow, a door to close, a heater to turn on or off on a day like this. And yet sometimes we don't sleep well. You know, we really don't. We're worried, we're anxious. There's a chronic sleep problems in our culture. And um, it may well be that a good deal of those sleep problems are based upon greed, hatred, and delusion. The kind of things that sleep medicines are not going to fix. The kind of things that we have to resolve through the way that we work with our own mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.